This podcast is for investment professionals only. The information and views expressed, including any reference to specific investments, does not constitute investment advice, nor should it be treated as a recommendation for any investment. Past performance is not a guide to future performance, and the value of an investment may fall as well as rise. Welcome to Taking Stock, hosted by Finley Park. Hello, everyone. Back by popular request for our next quarterly podcast. This is Jonathan Tredgett, Partner and Portfolio Manager. And joining me today is Anthony Kingsley, Portfolio Manager, Partner, and the Chief Investment Officer of Finley Park. A lot has changed, Anthony, in the last few months since we did our last podcast. Could you update us on what's going on? Yes, so it's been a challenging quarter from a fund perspective and from a stock market perspective. Uh, The stock market is down in the first quarter, the fund is down in the first quarter, and there are a number of reasons for that. Um, But I think, first of all, in response to higher inflation, there's been an important change uh, in interest rates with with rising yields um, and also an expectation that the Federal Reserve is going to move faster and further in raising short-term interest rates. And that's clearly had some negative consequences for both the stock market and for the fund. And exactly how have higher interest rates impacted some of the companies in the fund? Well, it's a good question. Uh, Interest rate rises uh, impact the portfolio in a number of different ways. Take just, for instance, the housing market. We have exposure to a number of consumer stocks, uh, consumer uh, distributors that we've talked about previously. Uh, And these companies provide a range of essential housing-related services, including, say, plumbing, insulation, paint supply, uh, to US customers. So we think that concerns around housing market are overdone. Uh, Of course, Americans are are spending more time working at home. Uh, The pandemic appears to have been a catalyst uh, to a rebound in household formation and first-time buyers participating in in the housing market. Inventory is sitting at at 20-year lows, Uh, And we do expect um, our companies to continue to take market share, uh, benefit from scale, uh, and ultimately generate compelling compound returns over time. So we think these companies are beneficiaries of higher inflation, but in the short term, the valuations have been impacted by higher interest rates. Yes, and it's fully understandable why investors are concerned after what happened in the U.S. housing market, of course, over 15 years ago. But we think the environment today is very different. And certainly the lending environment is also dramatically different than what happened back in the early 2000s and mid 2000s. And how have higher interest rates, Anthony, impacted some of the technology holdings in the fund? So technology has been an interesting area this year and and the stocks and technology have been weak. But I would differentiate between the more speculative technology companies that don't have any profits or earnings. They're very early stage. Um, Those stocks were were bid up very high last year and have come off very, very sharply in some cases, 50 percent or more. Uh, And I differentiate between those and and the companies that we have in the fund, which are strong, resilient businesses that have good revenue growth, uh, good margins, strong cash flows, uh, great franchises, and where we have a high degree of confidence in the inevitability and the compounding of those businesses. So, for example, Adobe, Autodesk, Intuit, um, Microsoft, uh, which are all delivering 
frankly, must-have products to customers, whether it's in publishing or engineering, whether it's design or tax management or small business accounting. Um, and, and these are paid for by regular subscription. So, uh, yeah, I would just differentiate between those two areas of technology. But certainly technology in general has come under pressure. And what have you seen in the actual fundamental results of the companies in the fund that have reported since we did the last podcast? Yeah, no, that's that's a good point because actually just on the technology companies I was talking about there, in general, they have continued to deliver in the fourth quarter very good results. And more broadly, I think we feel pretty good about the results that they're delivering and that the momentum in their business uh, remains strong. And again, we feel good about their ability to keep compounding their cash flow and earnings. So one of the challenges this quarter has been energy. Energy stocks have performed very well. We do have some exposure to energy, but John, share some thoughts on energy in our exposure. Well, certainly the energy space has done uh, very well year to date, as you point out. I think most of the top 20 performing stocks in the S&P 500 actually year to date are energy companies. Historically, energy companies have not scored very well on the Finley Park investment philosophy. We do own EOG Resources, which is a company we really respect and does score reasonably well on our philosophy. This is a company that historically has been self-funded. It's always spent within its cash flows and historically has generated uh, a good return on capital. It's earned its cost of capital over time, which is very difficult to do um, in that industry. And of course, unfortunately, the recent events in Ukraine have implications for the oil price. And of course, we've seen upward pressure in the oil price, John, but also upward pressure in other commodities uh, which uh, come from Ukraine and Russia. And we had issues uh, already with tight supply chains around the world, whether they're labor related, commodity related, logistics related. And this is clearly going to put more pressure on those supply chains. So we probably have to be thinking about supply chain challenges uh, likely lingering for longer here than uh, what we what we would have thought prior to coming into this this war. Now, our investment philosophy, of course, uh, guides us towards companies with pricing power. That's a really important component of the investment philosophy. And in times of rising inflation and tight supply chains, that becomes even more important. Uh, and so, you know, broadly speaking, we're confident that the companies that we own uh, can eventually recoup. You know, the lost the lost uh, margin uh, in the form of higher prices to customers and maybe with a lag, but um, we feel good about their ability to do that because of their pricing power. And that's exactly what we heard from the companies we visited with in recent weeks. We had people on the East Coast, we had people on the West Coast. It was great to be back seeing companies. And the message from them is many of our companies are very confident that they have the pricing power to recoup the input cost inflation they're seeing over time. So I'm here now with John Feely, Portfolio Manager and Alistair Pringle, Investment Analyst. And I've just been talking to John Tredgett about growth companies, quality companies, technology companies that have derated somewhat in the first quarter here um, and as a, as a result of interest rate rises. So I thought I might just pick up on that with you, John, and uh, get some thoughts around that. Yes, if we uh, if we take the Nasdaq um, 100 as a, a kind of crude proxy for technology stocks and, and growth stocks, uh, which are, are overweighted in that basket, um, we've noted that that index has corrected materially 
around the onset of Fed tightening and in several instances in the past 20 years. So if you look at 2004 or 2015, which were the first you know, rate hikes of that cycle, or even in 2010, 11 and 12, where you had three different sets of uh, quantitative easing come to an end. In each of those instances, we've seen the index correct uh, by a mid-teens percentage. And, and we've seen something similar this time around. Um, and essentially, the the longer the perceived duration of the asset, um, the greater the drawdown. So if you look, for instance, at, say, the 75 best all-round growth stocks in the market, um, we've seen that basket come down by about 25% so far this year. Now, we have a number of software companies in the portfolio, uh, but specifically, um, we like software companies where the end users are non-technologists rather than IT departments. Can you tell us a little bit about why we favour those type of software companies? Yeah, it's really um, a function of, of uh, you know, if we're going to say these these companies trade at higher valuations and uh, that implies that they're long-duration assets then you need to believe that the customers aren't going to switch to another alternative. And um, with the non-technologist user, they tend to have gone up a learning curve and uh, in the product and invest some time in in getting to know how to use it. From that point, they're less prone to switch than, say, an IT procurement department that is endlessly interested in what's the latest or greatest product. So a good example of a company uh, with end users who are non-technologists is Intuit. And uh, John, tell us a little bit about Intuit. Yep. By, by way of introduction, Intuit provide uh, tax filing software to individuals and accounting uh, software solutions to small businesses. And um, you know, along the theme of, of selling to non-technologists, the customer here might be you know, an Uber driver or somebody who runs a gardening business. And when they sit down on a, on a Monday night in February to file their taxes, they essentially want that process done as quickly as possible. So, you know, one thing uh, that we like here is the appetite for switching is is fairly minimal once the customer's gotten comfortable with the, with the product. And um, Intuit's job, once it has that sticky user base, is just to, to learn from their behavior, to eke out continual product improvement, and that helps them attract the next user. Now, Intuit's evolved as a company uh, over the last five years. Um, can you share how that how that evolution has has happened? Yeah, that's that's right. Um, five years ago, I'd have told you that Intuit was a software business focused on a, on a couple of distinct verticals: tax prep and, and accounting. But uh, today, it's much more of a platform company um, with a with a broad aim of trying to fuel the success of consumers and and small businesses. So. That really seems a fairly significant change in, in a pretty short period. And, and to get there, there have been two big pivots. Um, first was the introduction of, of live services, um, most notably in, in TurboTax, but also in, in QuickBooks. And, and then secondly, there's been a couple of acquisitions, namely Credit Karma and MailChimp, which we believe have given Intuit the chance to meaningfully accelerate its revenue growth. So just picking up on, on those two uh, areas of pivot uh, and maybe starting with Live, ha- ha- tell us a little bit more about Live and what that's meant for Intuit. Yeah, so Live goes beyond the traditional online uh, tax questionnaire where you're on your own and um, and delves into really helping you ask, answer those hard questions. Um, so for instance, if you bought or sold investments, you got married, maybe you dabbled in crypto and don't know how to um, answer the tax return question on that. That's really where Live comes in. And to set the scene of, of 
who they're helping. Um, if over 40% of Americans begin filing their taxes uh, with Intuit this year, but the conversion is much lower. Many give up because they've got that jump ball question where they don't quite know what to put in the box. And so Live um, can furnish that answer, oftentimes by machine learning, um, where they know what other people in the same situation have most probabilistically um, come up with. And uh, in other cases, they can refer you to an accountant for a live video chat. And that's all, you know, 24-7 without leaving the, the, the comfort of the kitchen table. So, John, that's the customer value proposition of Live. Um, but tell us a little bit about what Live does for the economics of the business. So Intuit um, would ordinarily correct, collect around $60 in fees uh, for online tax preparation. And if you compare that against the opening price point of the leading uh, chain of tax stores, yeah, they charge you know typically twice that and then the add-ons rack up pretty quickly thereafter. So Live is able to you know, come in at a slight discount to that, but essentially twice the value of the product they've been selling. And uh, to scale the opportunity, 90% of the dollars in US tax prep are in those um, slightly more complex returns with the type of questions I, you know, I alluded to earlier. And so that's a big opportunity for Intuit. The past decade, they've been able to grow this tax business you know, on average in the double digits each year. And with the addition of live that allows them to address the 90% of the value in the, in the market, uh, that should set them up for another decade where they can continue those types of growth rates. Yeah, so live's a powerful economic driver as well as a strong uh, customer value proposition. Um, t- turning to this other pivot towards uh, acquisitions, uh, you mentioned Credit Karma uh, and MailChimp. Um, could you just explain the importance of those two acquisitions? Yeah, sure. Um, Credit Karma, it's, it's a bit like an online money supermarket in, in the US. It has over 110 million members, and, and that scale makes it a pretty unique property. The, these members, they, they volunteer their credit information, and, and then they receive live updates on their credit score, as well as tailored offers to financial products. Now, now where the magic happens is combining the data that Credit Karma has with the verified income data that you provide as part of your tax returns in the US. So this really rich data set is, is very valuable when it comes to qualifying customers and trying to match them with financial products, which are provided by Credit Karma's financial partners. Um, the bounty or the referral fee that you get on these matches would, would exceed and in many cases vastly exceed the revenue from just processing the customer's taxes. So, so we see that there's the potential to materially expand the value of those tax relationships um, currently, Credit Karma is is growing ahead of management's long term expectations, and that is really before it has been fully integrated into the broader product ecosystem, where we see that there's an opportunity to drive significant revenue synergies across the business. And and Mailchimp, Mailchimp's a more recent acquisition. It only closed in in November last year. Um, if I were to describe Mailchimp, it's it's a marketing automation platform. Um, what does that mean? It's really just a bit of software that helps a small business attract, engage, and retain their customers. What we see here is a similar story to Credit Karma. Intuit are integrating all of the capabilities so that if you're sat in QuickBooks, you can quickly lever all of the capabilities from MailChimp and vice versa. Um, strategically, it's particularly interesting because the acquisition effectively pulls forward 
the point at which Intuit first engages with a small business customer. When you start a small business, you're not thinking, ooh, which accounting software should I use? You're thinking about what am I going to sell? Who am I going to sell it to? How am I going to get my business online? And how am I going to accept payments? Longer term, therefore, we view MailChimp as an interesting on-ramp for customers into the broader ecosystem. And what we've already started to see is Intuit really dialing up the marketing spend behind MailChimp, which should actually has the potential to lead to an acceleration of growth in the near term. So your point here uh, earlier on was about this sort of single unified uh, platform. Uh, and it seems that, that MailChimp, Credit Karma have, have been integrated into uh, the other Intuit products. Absolutely. That is the longer term strategy for Intuit here. And when we look at Intuit from an ESG perspective, is there anything in particular that you'd highlight? Intuit's always been a, a mission-driven company um, since the founding by Scott Cook. Um, and then latterly, um, you know, Bill Campbell, CEO, installed a, you know, a really vibrant, innovative culture within the company. He was profiled in a book called The Trillion Dollar Coach as a key mentor to Steve Jobs and the team at Google. And that continues, and that innovative culture shows up in these meaningful new uh, products such as Live that we discussed. Um, within the S, um, Intuit is um, uh, you know, providing fair access to credit via Credit Karma. So they have 110 million global users. And uh, the reason it's reached such scale is uh, you know, consumers have generally had problems um, accessing a fair rate on financial products and needed to solve uh, misunderstandings around you know what their score should be and then finally on environmental we're seeing um, Intuit establish a suite of tools to allow small businesses to understand their carbon impact uh, which will be a new area for them. It's a, it's a really interesting point there about you know the the democratization of finance and uh, we, we've talked I know here internally about the structural headwinds that banks face in, in losing share over time to, you know, fintechs. And I think Intuit is, uh, you know, is very well placed to take share and uh, benefit from tailwinds around the democratization of finance. Um, so we started this by asking uh, some questions around uh, growth companies, technology companies, and the drawdown that we've seen in the first quarter uh, in many of those companies, the high quality companies of which Intuit is one. Um, just just share a few thoughts on, on valuation here. So yes, from, from a valuation perspective, Intuit is, is trading on multiples that are consistent with the five-year average. And yet we believe that revenue and EPS growth has the potential to accelerate versus what was experienced during that prior five-year period. Very good. John, Alistair, thank you. So I'm here with Rose Beale, our responsible investment lead, and Guy Thomas, an analyst on the investment team. Uh, ESG, always a topic of, of discussion and, and debate, and I think particularly so at the moment uh, with the outbreak of the war uh, with Russia and Ukraine. Um, it's, it's caused uh, a number of people to, to question certain um, assumptions that they may have had. Uh, Rose, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, it's a great question, uh, obviously a, a tragic context, um, but I think it's brought up some really interesting questions around what is ESG um, and what do we mean when we talk about sustainable companies in the world today? 
So we've taken what we believe is a uh, robust but also pragmatic approach. We've looked not just at high-level exposures like defence, but importantly thought about exactly what a company is doing and for whom. So when it comes to what a company is doing, we've taken a different view, for instance, when it comes to cluster munitions, the more general defence. And then very topical right now is uh, the for whom question. So we may take a view, for instance, that companies supporting the US defence programme are different from those supporting uh, the programmes of some other countries. And uh, as you say, defence, very topical uh, right now. We have a company in the portfolio, Jacobs. Um, How does that score on ESG? Yeah, again, a very fair question. So um, Jacobs is not a defence company per se. It does have some exposure to defence. We actually think it has some really interesting ESG attributes, both in terms of its operations and also its, its wider products and services. So from an operational perspective, it's a climate leader. It's got a really robust science-based climate target. It's been very focused on diversity and inclusion and culture more broadly um, as a kind of mode of of, uh, success. In terms of products and services, actually about half of the business is exposed to um, positive sustainability areas. So things like sustainable transport, renewable energy, water security, And the firm's been really proactive about trying to embed and imbue everything it does um, with a focus on sustainability. So, for instance, by 2025, it wants every project that it's involved in to contribute to the UN's 17 sustainability goals, the SDGs. Great. So, so Guy, uh, tell us a little bit more about Jacobs and, and why it's a good fit for the fund. Sure. Well, Jacobs is a professional services firm based in Dallas, Texas. Um, It's probably best known for its history as a project engineer and designer, uh, but it's in fact fairly broad. So the company engages in a range of activities ranging from technical uh, and scientific services uh, all the way to strategy consulting. About half the business is to public clients. So this might be to US State Department of Transportation, where it helps uh, them with their infrastructure projects, or to US federal entities like NASA, Department of Energy or the Department of Defense. Um, The other half of the business is to commercial clients. So here Jacobs are uh, a leading uh, designer and provider of facilities for the life sciences and semiconductor industries. Uh, And as I mentioned, the the company has recently expanded into strategy consulting via its acquisition of PA consulting uh, at the end of 2020. So Guy, why is Jacobs a good fit with our investment philosophy? Well, as I mentioned, the investment philosophy fit of Jacobs has improved substantially uh, in recent years as the management team has transformed the business. What is more interesting, though, is the forward outlook for the business. And this is really about growth. Um, We think around 60% of the Jacobs portfolio is growing double digit. And this is driving our longer term revenue expectations towards the high single digit level versus low to mid single digit historically. So the most obvious of these revenue drivers is infrastructure. So late last year, the US passed uh, a new infrastructure bill, which will add uh, over half a trillion dollars of investment spending over the coming years. Uh, And as a front end design services provider, we think Jacobs will be amongst the first to see these benefits. 
The other area worth mentioning uh, is in Jacobs' commercial business, uh, where, as I mentioned, it is a leading designer for the life sciences and semiconductor industries. Now, these are areas um, that are boasting a lot of capital investment, and Jacobs' businesses here are, are booming, uh, growing comfortably double-digit. Yeah, those are really interesting growth drivers. And actually behind them, supporting both infrastructure and their commercial opportunity is in part their focus on sustainability. Um, and we've seen, for instance, in the US infrastructure bill, a uh, component of that specifically around climate and sustainability. And what Jacobs have done over the past few years is put themselves in a position where they can combine their infrastructure and technical expertise with this focus on sustainability and come up with something really unique and differentiated. So, for instance, one project the company's talked about is working for a Californian utility that needed to become much more climate resilient and in particular resilient to wildfires. So Jacobs was able to put together a solution for them, which um, put their cables underground, safe away from wildfires, but was using satellite imagery and lots of new technology to do this in a very robust, long-term way. And the company was really impressed by this and thought it was um, particularly differentiated. And Guy, you've talked about the transformation of the company in terms of some divestitures, some acquisitions. When we think about capital allocation, um, do those present opportunities for Jacobs going forward? Yes, very much so. We would expect capital allocation to be an important lever for the company going forward. Guy, what about valuation on Jacobs? Yes, well, we think valuation looks pretty reasonable. Um, historically, Jacobs has traded at a, a discount to the market multiple, um, and it's still a, a, at a bit of a discount. Um, but when we think about the history of the business, um, growing low to mid single digit versus the forward outlook for the business growing high single digit, we think there's a credible argument that valuation could improve over time. Uh, but even if it doesn't, you know, we still see the business compounding earnings and free cash flow at healthy levels. So uh, you know, we don't see valuation. Uh, you know, we're all reliant on valuation. Very good. Rose, Guy, thank you very much. So I'm back with John Tredgett. Uh, just a few thoughts maybe to kind of wrap up here, John. Uh, we talked a little bit about interest rates and rising interest rates and the impact that's had on uh, different sectors and performance in the first quarter. But of course, rising interest rates also um, has implications on debt and leverage and, and interest costs. So uh, share some thoughts on that, if you will. Yeah, the fund, Anthony, has always sought companies with lower leverage on average than exist in the market. And there's defensive attributes to that, and there's also offensive attributes to that. And defensively, you know, we want the balance sheet to be a source of strength for our companies, you know, not a source of weakness. And in situations like today where interest rates are going up, credit spreads are widening slightly, and the availability of credit might become less for some companies. And we feel comforted that a lot of our companies are self-funded and have strong balance sheets, which puts them in a position to go on offense if credit conditions tighten. It's a good point about self-funded companies and companies that obviously generate significant free cash flow because, of course, share price volatility has different implications for different businesses. And one of the things that we have seen here in the first quarter is that share buyback activity has increased over the last uh, number of months 
uh, and many of the companies have accelerated their share repurchase program. And of course, you can only do that if you're self-funded, if you've got strong free cash flow, and if you've got a good balance sheet and not too much leverage. Well, that seems like a good place to end. Thank you very much, John. And and thank you all for listening. Uh, We do always appreciate feedback and uh, see you soon for the next episode of Taking Stock.